You are listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about Citizens, please visit citizensbhm.com. So last week, uh, Charlie Yambez, our worship director, did a incredible job preaching Luke 16. And he hit the story on the first half of Luke 16. And we're kind of hitting the story on the second half. And what Charlie broke it down to us is that we can be generous because God's been generous to us. And we can use all of our secular management skills, all of our life skills, we can actually put them to work with our earthly riches to make a heavenly difference. That we can put our whole self to work in what we do to make a life live for the kingdom of God and matter for eternity. And Jesus' second story both asks and answers, what happens if we don't? What if we refuse to live for God? What if we refuse to put God first, but rather keep money as the thing we love more than God? That's the context here. Jesus told the Pharisees in Luke 16, verse 13 says, No servant can have two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Because the Pharisees were lovers of money. When they heard all these things, they ridiculed him. Imagine Jesus' eyeball to eyeball tells you a passionate story and your response is to ridicule him. Even though you're very religious. Because ultimately you love money more than God. So you mock him. And gracious Jesus actually says, well, let's tell a second story then. See, you can be very religious like the Pharisees and still love money more than God and therefore be lost. And if you're new to citizens, new in the past two weeks, you might think, wow, man, they got it going in. First they preach on money and then they double down and preach on money in hell in back-to-back weeks. Not quite enough laughs. laughs. You're like, yeah, it is a lot, Justin, I know. I know I didn't write this stuff. The guy did. And I want you to know two things. One, we're always going to preach the scriptures. We believe they're God's words. We're going to preach whatever is there. It doesn't matter the controversy uh, about it. It doesn't matter how difficult it is. It's God's words, so we're going to teach them. We're going to preach them, and we're going to try to live them. But the second thing I want you to know, I just want you to prepare your hearts Because next week is an even bigger controversy. It's maybe some of the most controversial topic of all time. You might be familiar with this debate. It looks like this. It's the classic under-over debate. It divides households. It divides hearts. It is greater than the Auburn-Alabama divide. Which way does it work? And after many years of long study, really getting into the languages on this one, really trying to figure it out, just don't be a monster, guys. Don't be a monster. You can go either way, but don't be the person who's hosting community group with like, I don't know, there's some rolls in the corner. Good luck. Good luck. Let's not live like that. You were made for more. You were made for more. But in all seriousness, fam, Jesus tells us stories rather than just facts 
because he wants the deep truths of the gospel to get past your head and actually sink into your heart. Isn't that why we love a story? If you just told me all the facts, it'd be like a legal report or a court reporter, which is somewhat interesting. But the best lawyers tell you a story, bring you right to the crime, and convince you of what really happened. And Jesus is convincing you, this is what's actually going on inside of you. Pharisees, you're missing it, but we're missing it. And Jesus tells us a story about a rich man and a poor man who live in the same town. And actually, one man's living in a house, but the house is so rich he has a gate on it. And the other man apparently lives most of his time at the gate of that man's house. Verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered in sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. We have two men who are made in the image of God. Two men in the same town. Two men who we'll find out later know each other. They're not like strangers passing in the night. These are they're, they're neighbors, literally neighbors. But they live such opposite lives. Look at this chart with me. The scriptures are set up this way that we would see the rich man and the poor man are living opposites. One is covered in fine clothes, wearing purple in that time that you were kind of a, an official person in the town, that the Romans said you could wear purple like a Caesar, that you are actually kind of in charge, you're like a dignitary for your town. By fine linens, that's the, the nice translation, it meant that he had soft underwear from Egypt. That's what it's really meaning. It's a guy with a robe and a guy wearing fancy undies that you would order online here, all right? The other guy's covered in sores. One feasted every day, one's hungry every day. One has a gated home, and one's laid at the gutter at the gate. When he's trying to eat off the table, it means he's waiting for the scraps to get thrown to those dogs. The literal gutter outside this man's home is where he lays. And the word laid also means as if he's laying, but also someone laid him down or threw him down. It's very likely he's disabled, and he literally has to wait in the gutter for the food to get to him, which means that's probably why he's covered in sores and fighting with dogs until he has no more energy to fight them off. He's quite literally dying in front of this man. And the rich man is not only rich, being wealthy isn't a sin, but boy is this man self-indulgent. He feasts sumptuously, lavishly, expensively every day, not just on holidays, not for a big occasion, but this is what he does with his time in a world where food was so much more scarce. It's a picture of a man living to excess while Lazarus is quite literally dying of hunger and disease's front door. And self-indulgence is the ugly road of selfishness that forgets God, forgets all consequence, and forgets everyone around you. 
And self-indulgence is a consistent critique of Jesus on the Pharisees. He'll say the literal words in, ver- in Matthew 23. James 5 warns us against it. It's throughout the Bible that when we focus on ourselves to the point of losing all control, losing all restraint of our desires, where our impulses start to control us instead, we con- instead of us controlling them. See, sin twists our God-given desires for good things. It's a good desire to want to eat and nourish your body. It's a good desire to pursue some comfort of of, of how you're going to sleep and live. It's a good desire to pursue joy, but sin twists them and makes us pursue those things in a way that's all about us and not about anyone else and certainly not about God. And that's where this man is. Self-indulgence leads to ruin eternally, but it usually has painful consequences for those around us. Self-indulgence usually catches up with us long before we get to eternity. Our culture calls it rock bottom. That's usually where it spirals down, just like Luke 15. And the beauty of the gospel is that salvation is more than just forgiveness. Forgiveness is amazing. But salvation, the gospel, also God gives us himself. And by God's Spirit, the giving of God Himself were made new. And one of the fruits of the Spirit is, as Galatians 5 tells us, self-control. The part of our salvation is to make us new so that our desires, our self-indulgent desires, our desires gone wild don't have to rule you forever. But in following Christ, you're given His Spirit, and one of the fruits or works of that Spirit is self-control. That there's hope for us, no matter how poor or how rich or what we've done or how much our desires have ran wild in life, to come and believe in Christ means self-control can be your story. That you don't have to be doomed by your desires. We need God or we'll never quite stop serving ourselves. Even if we're a good person, it'll be to be a good person, not for the glory of God. But notice how this text reverses the values of the world. It flips all these things. Being poor is not a crime. And being rich isn't a sign of God's approval. Being poor is not a crime, as it's often treated. And being rich is not a sign of God's approval. Apparently, from this story, we see worldly blessings are not a good indicator of our spiritual faithfulness. See, they lived in a world where there was immediate blessing and curse from God over everything they did. That's how they thought, that you do good things, good things will happen to you, probably financial blessings. You do bad things, bad things will happen, and God will make you poor. It was a system, a form of karma, really, is what they were believing, a God-directed karma. And the Bible's wisdom and common sense would agree there is some cause and effect between work and wealth. You work, you work hard for things. Usually, wealth or or money results. But the Bible also presents a world that's more broken and a lot more complicated than that. Most of us have experienced that reality too, right? Jesus is telling us that being poor isn't karma. Being rich isn't karma either. Karma, in fact, doesn't exist at all. 
Instead, we live in a broken and beautiful world where God is infinitely good. And that right now, there will be a final judgment for sure one day, but right now, Jesus tells us in Matthew 5 that God makes the sun shine on the good and the bad. That right now we live in a world that's broken and beautiful, but God is good and he gives us what's called common grace, that the sun shines and that it rains and that we have food to eat and then air to breathe. That right now the rain comes for the good and the evil. The sun comes for the good and evil. It's not karma. We don't manipulate God with our actions. And a sister belief to this, another karma-like belief, is the prosperity gospel. That the rich, if we follow God and we behave, we'll get rich. And that's just complete nonsense. Because Jesus teaches the very opposite. You might follow Jesus and things go poorly financially. And that doesn't mean he doesn't love you. He'll be with you, but life can be hard and strange and unpredictable. Being poor isn't a crime. Being rich isn't a sign of God's approval, no matter what our culture says. And the same concept goes with churches, I might add. A church, maybe it's wealthy, but it also can be rotten spiritually. A church may be humble in ability, but spiritually thriving. Material blessings don't mean we're faithful to God. Yet no matter what you have or don't have, the same fate awaits us all. And in the story, this fate comes suddenly for both men. Verse 24 or verse 22. The poor man died. He was carried by angels to Abraham's side. That's their way of saying heaven. Abraham's side, he's the first ancestor of the Jews. He would be this person who's greeting the Jews of the, to, to heaven. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. The audience would be surprised. The rich man wasn't favored by God. And in fact, he didn't belong to God at all. The audience would be equally surprised as Lazarus, this man seemingly living a cursed life, licked by dogs in a gutter every day. Well, actually, he belonged to God. Even though he was in earthly misery, that's about as tough as it gets. But if they'd read their Old Testament closely, if they'd read their Old Testament the way God had written it, not the way the Pharisees had made up their own laws around it, not the way the Pharisees had emphasized themselves, but if you read the Old Testament, you know that to overlook, to ignore the poor, to refuse the poor help, particularly a fellow Jew, was a grave sin. Just look at some of these verses. It's end to end on the Old Testament. This is Deuteronomy 15. It says, if among you one of your brothers should become poor, if any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. This is literally what the rich man did. Not just in like a general land of Israel, it's on his own house's land. 
You shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. That's not just flipping our guy a couple bucks. That's an open hand. Look what it says in the Proverbs. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. As Charlie was talking about, we don't have any money. Any money we have is the Lord's. We're just stewards or managers or even lenders of it, as God has lent to us. The generous will themselves be blessed. There is a blessing in being generous. For they share their food with the poor. You don't have to be rich to be generous. Sharing doesn't mean you have everything. It means you're sharing something. Look one more at Isaiah. It's a passage where it's talking about what true worship is. Is true worship, is it not to share your bread with the hungry and to bring the homeless poor into your house? When you see the naked, to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh. That you shouldn't work to hide yourself from seeing the poor so that you don't have to care for them. We could honestly go on and on. It, it's kind of tough to find a, chap, a, a book of the Bible that doesn't talk about the disadvantaged. It'd be tough. You'd have to go on quite a hunt in the Old Testament as it comes up over and over. And by the way, Jesus is not recommending we do less in the New Testament. But honestly, as people of God's spirit, who can have self-control, but also self-controlled love and patience and kindness and gentleness, the call arises to care for our fellow man, to care for each other. And here's where great clarity is needed. Caring for the poor does not save you. Caring for the poor does not save you. Our good works, our acts of mercy, they don't save us from our sins. We are saved by faith in Christ through grace that only comes from Christ. That is the only way to be saved is to trust Jesus, the great sacrifice for us. But while our good deeds don't save us, our deeds, our lack of deeds, sure do show what's inside of us. They don't save us. But we can't hide from what's true about us in our life. If we would show God our credit card statement, he'll probably be generous to show you what you really care about. That's a tall order. But honestly, it's just a step into reality with God. We are an extension. Our money is an extension of us. It is an extension of our priorities. It is an extension of what we care about. And refusing to care for the poor, refusing to be generous, choosing self-indulgence over compassion, those are all symptoms of a sick heart. Those are all warning signs. They like the car lights on the dash are blinking. Hey, something's wrong with the engine. This engine doesn't run correctly. It's not seeing the people. It's self-indulgent. It's drunk. It's fat. It's, it's not working. There's, there's something clogging the arteries. They're all symptoms of loving money over God, which is a definite sign that we truly don't belong to Jesus. Because a heart that's saved by grace is changed by grace. 
And we begin, when we are saved by grace, we begin to desire to follow Jesus, not our selfish way any longer. And I'm not exaggerating for effect, my beloved. My friends, I'm not exaggerating to shock and awe us into to, to, to behaving. I, if you think I'm exaggerating, just read the story again. Take it from the Lord. He tells a dramatic story to get a dramatic shock to us that perhaps things aren't right. The rich man, the self-indulgent man, he goes to hell. That's what Hades means in Greek. That's what Hades means here in the Bible. Not figuratively, but very literally. He doesn't belong to Jesus. And my job is ultimately to tell the truth of God's words. That's my job ultimately. In 2 Timothy 2.15, it says a pastor must rightly divide the words of truth. It's a farming technique to lay out the rows, to lay out a big field, to lay out the words of God correctly before that they would produce a good fruit. And I'm charged both with interpreting the word well, but also teaching and preaching it only needing one person's approval. That I would rest to say, these are your words, not mine. And I too submit to them. Therefore, I must impress upon you, church, just as Jesus does in the story, that heaven and hell are real. And that's only shocking because our culture loves the idea of heaven being real. Not a big fan of hell being real. If you notice, you you rarely meet people who who believe in both. They're very convinced of one, very skeptical of the other. The Bible is not that way. And this passage gives us incredible hope for Christians. That Think about it. No matter how bad your life was on earth, the hope of heaven is a dramatic reversal. Lazarus is standing All of his hopes and dreams are true. He's meeting his great, 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 great grandfather and Abraham and welcoming him home. The man's not covered in sores. I don't think we'll be covered in scars because I think only Jesus' scars on his hands will remain. There will be a moment when every tear is wiped from our eye, every injustice is flipped, there's no more pain, there's no more sorrow, but that heaven truly will be this moment where our love is complete with God. On this side of heaven, Jesus is satisfying, but he will be infinitely more in his presence. We have a taste now that's leading to the buffet. There is hope in heaven. If you're suffering, if you're getting your, you're you're just, you just, you feel like you're just losing. You just feel like you can't win. I got good news. I don't know if you'll win in this life. I don't know if you want to win. Given this parable. But one day you will stand and you'll have every answer. You'll be perfectly loved and your body will work. There won't be any medical mysteries. And that Jesus will call you by name and welcome you home. However, for those who don't truly take Jesus as Savior and Lord, who do not experience the transformation of his grace, The Bible teaches upon death there will be no purgatory. Uh, That's a myth. There, there, There will be no waiting period. But they will be lost forever to hell. And what is hell? 
Well, as we put the whole Bible together, hell is the eternal, conscious, like people are awake, place of judgment and torment away from God and all his good. We talked about common grace earlier, that even though our world's broken, in another way it still works. Like it's still beautiful and broken and we can live and have joy and there's beautiful things. Hell will be a place where there's no God and there's no common grace. Imagine a world like this world where there's absolutely no happiness. There's no joy. There's no beauty. There's no truth. Nothing good ever happens. And instead, it's a place of torment that even a rich, selfish man begs for mercy. That would be the biblical reality of hell. And as uncomfortable as the idea is, Scripture is quite clear it's a reality. And there will be no crossings, no second chances, no redos. That is, Hebrews 9 tells us that man is appointed to die once and then the judgment. However, as this passage teaches, hell is an avoidable reality. Hell is an avoidable reality. And I think with the seriousness of this story and this passage, there are three grave lessons to teach us coming out of literally like eternity. It's like we're getting a movie shot from eternity, but that we can apply now. And we can think about how to carefully live our life. And the first is this. Look how the rich man is still trapped in his sin. And it shows us how sin deceives us. Verse 24. It says, the rich man called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus. Get that guy. Get Lazarus. Suddenly he knows his name. Get Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in the water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received good things. And Lazarus, in like manner of bad things. And now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you is a great chasm, a great valley, an uncrossable place that has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may carry from there to us. And he said, the rich man, then I beg of you, father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. This is the trap of sin. The rich man hasn't escaped his sinful ways even in hell. He's still me first. Have mercy on me. Not because I'm a sinner, Lord, and help. Have mercy on me because I'm me. The guy who denied someone mercy suddenly is a big fan of mercy. It's all about him. Me before you. Even from hell, he thinks he can boss Lazarus around. Even from hell, he thinks he's better than Lazarus. Feels like he can tell him the errands to run. And last, the, tra- the final trap of sin, it's not my fault. It sounds gracious. Go tell my brothers. But think about it. 
what he's saying is, God, you have not sufficiently told us what it means to be saved. God, you have not sufficiently warned us. Lord, you haven't done the work, so man, get someone else to go. And that's how sin traps us. It's about me. It's about me before you. And it's never really my fault. If you find yourself in an argument with your friend, your spouse, your mama, your dad, your child, and your end point, if you think about it, is I'm the most important and it's not my fault. You're in a bad place, friend. You're in a place of arguing from sin. To not examine, to not think, to not put someone before us. No one's ever sinned by putting God first in their life. Every time we sin, it's because we usually put ourselves first over and above God and anybody else. If you're dating now and the other person doesn't want to put you before them, it's probably not going to get better in marriage. When people show you who they are, believe them. See the goodness in people. See the good things and celebrate them but also be wary. And do you feel the barb in the discussion here? It's like a fish hook. I think we got a fish hook for those of you who don't do a lot of fishing. A fish hook has two parts. There's this long point, and then there's this barb that actually points in the other direction. The point goes in the mouth of the fish. It bites down. The point goes in, but the barb pointing the other way jerks and catches the fish, it sticks in the fish when you pull on it. That way you can pull the fish in and the hook doesn't slip out. And I mention this because Jesus is a master storyteller. He's setting us up like a fish hook to the people listening and to us. That the point is going in that, look, the rich man says, hey, I'm helpless. Please come help me, Lazarus. Yet Lazarus can't. And the barb was, in the rich man's life, he really could have helped the poor man, and he didn't. And that's where it's supposed to stick deeper in us, that everyone wants mercy when they need it. We can be awfully stingy with mercy when someone else does. And that's how self-indulgence works. We only think of us, me first, me before you. It can't be my fault. And the story sticks there because now things are too late, which is our second lesson, urgency. Our time is short and our choices are permanent. Our time compared to eternity is extremely short, shorter than extremely short. Against eternity, if, we, if we're really living healthy, 70 years, 80 years, 90, everybody like knows someone hypothetically that's been 100, that's like the best hope. That will not be much compared to eternity. And furthermore, life's uncertain. No one knows how many days they really have left or are guaranteed. If we can die at any time and life is short and, and life is uncertain, Yet like the rich man, if we choose to love money over God, or like the poor man who suffered yet trusted God, we see our decisions on following Jesus have permanent consequences. 
We have this tiny short life, but the decisions made in it, both towards God and others, have a dramatic impact. There's no investment in the world like it. That something that can happen in such a small space will change eternity for so long. That salvation is a gift that leads to eternal life, but sin will end in judgment that leads to eternal death. Therefore, we must have an urgency to tell people about Jesus. If we believe heaven and hell are true and the gospel's only way, it creates an urgency to tell everyone about Jesus, to not be too worried about how you're coming across, but to tell people, do we want to be thoughtful? Do we want to be loving? Absolutely. I, I trust you are. But there is an urgency, an undeniable urgency to love people like Jesus with our lives, to show them and tell them the truth about the greatest news in the history of the world. But it starts with us loving Jesus more than anything else, or our witness is always hollow. Powerless evangelism exists when the evangelist is not wholeheartedly committed to Jesus. No one wants to buy a product from a salesman or a saleswoman that they're not using. The way to reach your family your friends, everyone you care about, is for you to wholeheartedly follow Jesus. And from that place of security, from that place of his love, then risk it to tell people and show them the gospel. Any other place is not sturdy enough to risk it from, right? Because you'll still need their approval. You'll still need their comfort. You'll still submit to their control. But if you find those things in Jesus, suddenly you're a bold evangelist. Not bold and offensive. It might be offensive, but bold in love and bold in words. To just say, hey, I'm following this guy. And this is what he says. Someone asked me, hey, you know, not long ago, why would you plant citizens? And uh, that's a great question. And there's a ton of answers. I got a, I got a whole pocket full of reasons. <laughs> But really, the two biggest are very similar. One, because people need to know about Jesus. We don't plant churches just to like, it's not a company, it's not a business. It, it, I, I hope people hear about Jesus and, and believe in him. And two is like it, I hope that we would grow up in our souls, that we would become more like Jesus, that we'd help others trust Jesus, and we'd learn to trust Jesus more as the years go by. That's why any church exists, if it belongs to Jesus. And interestingly enough, witness is where this story ends. Verse 29. But Abraham said, hey, they got Moses and the prophets. That's shorthand for the Old Testament. Let your brothers hear the Old Testament. And he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said to the rich man, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, if they don't listen to God's word, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Abraham tells them they don't need a special witness. They have the Bible. And the Bible points directly to Jesus. What else do you hope to be revealed to them? That they should love the poor and not love money? That's all in the Bible too. And we know the end of the story that Jesus will rise from the dead. He will come back and tell. But sadly, we see the results won't change a ton. That he gets a real mixed review from the world then and the world now. 
but that God has sufficiently witnessed to us through his word, that scriptures witness to us in two ways. First, they show us Jesus. The only way me and you know about Jesus is the Bible. Yes, people tell us their live testimony, but ultimately it's based on the word of the Bible. And the second thing is the Bible witnesses us. Listen how this works. So when you read the Bible, you're going to learn two things really quickly. One, God is unfathomably, unreachably good. The longer you read, the more you go, wow, my gosh, he's infinitely powerful and he's infinitely good. And by the time you get to the New Testament, the Savior, he doesn't just come to save us, but he comes to die from us and rise again. He's that good. But the other thing you discover quickly as you read the Bible, you don't read it for long going, ah, I'm a great person and I measure up. You start to read the Bible and you go, oh, maybe I don't measure up. Maybe God really is that good and, and maybe I'm not as great as I thought. But the Bible doesn't leave you hanging. It points and witnesses to the greatness of God. It witnesses to the greatness of our sin, how we've offended God, how we've not lived up, how we've just not been a good person, even if you don't believe. You, you can admit you've made some mistakes. And so what the Bible does, a third thing, is it points all sinners to Jesus. That the solution isn't trying harder, but putting your faith in a God who died for you. And that's where he ends the parable. That the scriptures were enough to save the rich man. They were enough to save the poor man. They're enough to save any brother of anybody. And they're enough to save you. They're enough to save me. Our God works like that through his word. Sin is a trap. Our lives are short. Our choices are permanent. So look to the scriptures. Look to the one who lives in eternity to teach you to live for eternity. And we see a note in this story that kind of pulls it all together. See, Lazarus is the only person named in any story in Luke. Any of the stories Jesus tells, these called parables, these little stories, he only names one character. And it's this guy, Lazarus. What's Lazarus' name mean? It means God helps. Would have been a sick joke if he just was sick in a gutter. But instead, it's the greatest assurance to see him standing next to Abraham, loved and safe. God will help you today, no matter what you've done or not done. Whether you're rich or poor, God's plan is to save. That's why he sent his own son to live, die, and rise again to make us new and to bring us home. And maybe this is the first time the gospel has ever sounded real to you and urgent to you to put your faith in Christ. And I urge you, if that's you, put your faith in Christ and be saved today. Be a part of the church. Let's grow together. Or maybe you've been a Christian for a while, but you're realizing maybe with gripping speed over Charlie's sermon and, and mine, that money holds more of your heart than you thought. That maybe the allegiances deep down are a little more mixed than we typically acknowledge. I want you to come and find grace that forgives and also transforms in Jesus Christ. He knows you don't live up. It's okay to freely admit, I am not as generous as I ought to be. I am not. But I need God's grace to transform my heart. Everyone in hell is there by choice. 
Sin is that deceitful. It'll lead you all the way down a road of self-indulgence. Everyone in heaven is there because Jesus saves and you can trust him today. He will help you no matter who you are. We cannot hide from the word's witness against us, but it's the word's witness that shows us Jesus, our only hope. Both the rich and the poor find their hope in Jesus Christ. If we hope in riches, we will always be poor. But if we hope in Jesus, we will always be rich.